1685, there was a man born named George Friedrich Handel. And he died in 1759, and over those decades of his life, from the 1600s stretching into the 1700s, he became a German-British composer. Famous for a musical piece known as Messiah. You may often hear it referred to as Handel's Messiah. That's the, the reference to his very famous composition. Now, he wrote a couple dozen very famous pieces. This is perhaps his best known And it takes nearly two and a half hours to perform from start to finish. You might be most familiar with what ends part two of the three parts, the famous hallelujah chorus. You know, hallelujah. I won't suffer you the, uh, I'll just tell you that's what it is rather than perform it. But nonetheless, um, you have that very famous excerpt from this much longer composition from Handel. It was first performed in 1742. So in the years to come, we'll be approaching 300 years since the premiere of this very important piece. Handel wrote it in 24 days. That's less than a month. (laughs) So that's an an incredible pace of musical composition. And his, his grand composition here has three big parts to it. And they are all focused on the Lord Jesus. And in the first big part of the composition, the theme is the prophesied birth of Christ, exploring various parts of the Old Testament and prophecies leading to the Messiah. The second big part of the piece is the focus on the work of Christ, his suffering, his death, his substitutionary sacrifice, his resurrection and ascension. The third and final part of Handel's Messiah is focused on the final resurrection of the dead and the vindication of God's people at the end of all things. It is a magnificent production. Part two, then, focuses on the work of Christ. I want to think about that for a moment because there are scriptures that you hear voices speak into the work of Handel's Messiah. And one of the scenes in part two draws upon Psalm 24. If you're listening to part two of Handel's Messiah, you get to the suffering and death of Christ, and then what comes next? The triumphant celebration of his victory. And voices, quoting the King James Version, begin to say, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. So according to Handel's Messiah... Psalm 24 has something to say about the triumph of the Son of God who overthrew sin and death and rose in victory and vindication. And I want you to know this morning, Handel is absolutely right about Psalm 24. That's exactly what Psalm 24 is trying to contribute. This musical interpretation is spot on. Psalm 24 is a messianic psalm. And this very important source material for Handel's Messiah, among many other source material in the scriptures, Psalm 24 celebrates the victory of the king. It is a shouting of his sovereignty over all things, his unwavering holiness to which people come and must say, who can ascend the hill where the Lord is? Who can approach him? Given who God is and His might, He is the creator of all things. He is holy and He is king. Psalm 24 celebrates His sovereignty and triumph. 
Psalm 24, we don't look at it in isolation, do we? We've noticed series of connections among the Psalms in our study of Book 1. And in Psalm 24, we come to the third of three Psalms in a thread. A thread of Psalms focusing, focusing in Psalms 22, 23, and 24 on the suffering of the King, the trust of the King, and His victory, His triumph. Here and now, Psalm 24. When we read Psalm 24, in other words, we're reading it, let's call it a capstone, on the preceding Psalms where the king is suffering and afflicted, surrounded and overwhelmed, but looking unto God with trust, and even in the valley of the shadow of death, there is hope and deliverance to come. That deliverance, that victory, is the shout of Psalm 24. Psalm 24 celebrates the kingship of God. Language in verse 3 is about the hill of the Lord and the holy place. For the ancient readers, a holy place and the hill of the Lord would naturally make them think of what city? Jerusalem. And the holy place in that city, the sanctuary, certainly set apart when David calls for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David's son Solomon will later build the temple of the Lord there. So this hill of the Lord and holy place makes us think of a place of worship. And the holiness of God and the city that in the minds of the ancient readers had been set apart by God for His important purposes. When these Israelites go out to battle, we also know that in the Old Testament they don't go alone. They carry with them the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant would go with, would go with the Israelites to battle, being carried by the designated folks. And this Ark was kept otherwise behind the veil in the smallest of the rooms, the holiest of the rooms at the temple on the hill of the Lord. When the ark returns, the ark ascends the hill of the Lord back to the proper enthroned resting place which symbolizes the might and triumph of God, His presence and holiness with His people. The reason this matters is because verses 3 and following talk about a hill of the Lord in a holy place and who can approach God. But the end of the psalm in verses 7 to 10 call for gates and doors to do something, to be lifting their heads for what seems to be the arrival of God himself, the king of glory. The king of glory is not David, the king of Israel. The king who is David is riding of a greater king. And we know that the psalms don't introduce that idea first here. Psalms 1 and 2 introduce for us the idea of the anointed one, the Messiah who would come to rule and to reign. So I submit to you a way to see Psalm 24 in light of what we've studied earlier in book 1 is that the arrival of the King of glory is nothing less than the celebration of the victory of the Messiah who will fulfill the psalm. He will be the suffering king and he will be the victorious vindicated king. When the Israelites return from battle, they bring the Ark of the Covenant with them. And it's as if they have to pass through the gates and the doors and come with the King of Glory to ascend the temple of the Lord where the Ark will rest behind the veil. But Christ is a greater Ark. And Christ has ascended in a greater way. And Christ has gone behind the veil and calls us to the presence of the Father by virtue of His own Beloved, redemptive work on the cross. His loving sacrifice on our behalf. 
Psalm 24 is a shout of victory. The victory of the king. The ascension of the king. In Psalm 24, we begin in the first of three parts. Part one, we're going to put it as a question. Who possesses the world? Question one. Who possesses the world? Verses one and two. The earth is the Lord's. So there's the answer to the question. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, which means the earth and everything in it. The fullness of the earth, everything it contains. The earth is the Lord's, and we don't just mean that abstractly. The psalmist says the fullness of the earth, all the regions of the world, God's sovereignty and creator role extend over all the reaches of all he has made. The earth is the Lord's and its fullness. The parallelism is in verse 1 as well, line 2. The world and those who dwell therein. Which means the earth is the Lord's, the world is the Lord's. Saying the same thing twice. But being clear here, those who dwell therein mean not just non-human creation. Though we would say he has made all the stars and he has made all the creatures that do not bear his image. But he has made image bearers. People who dwell on the earth. In verse 1, mankind, the image bearers of God, are under the sovereignty of God. So this opening verse announces that all the world belongs to God. And that is such a foundational, fundamental, basic idea of approaching living in a biblical way in our lives. To recognize all that we do is in a world that belongs to God. So the foolishness of rebellion against God is that we would be rebelling against the one to whom the world belongs, who reigns over all things in sovereign might and majesty. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. This kind of declaration is explained in verse 2. He doesn't just announce it. Why would he say this belongs to God? Well, it turns out the Lord has a vested interest in the world. He made it. So the ownership of the world is grounded in that he is the maker of the world. That's the relationship between verses 1 and 2. The earth belongs to God because he is the creator of the earth. He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This verse is just a way of summarizing what you read in Genesis 1. When God calls us all things to be, and He forms and shapes the world that He has made, and He establishes its boundaries and its limits, and He orders its seasons and days, Genesis 1 is simply being summarized here in verse 2. He founded it upon the seas and upon the rivers. Now in the ancient world, a reader might certainly have in mind that there are a series of other competing creation stories, myths, about things that were involving skirmishes among gods, in particular a god of the seas and rivers, a god named Yom, and another alternate name, Nahar. The gods Yom and Nahar in ancient uh, mythology of the world that uh, the earlier readers were in, they, these gods, were ascribed the role of creating and making and at least being part of the seas and the rivers. In fact, the word seas and the word rivers here is actually the name of those ancient deities that in the minds of those earlier readers, they ascribe power and authority and ownership to. 
One way to understand verses 1 through 2 then in our psalm is that the writer is subverting and undermining the false ways of looking at how the world came to be. That those other gods were not the makers of the world, but rather the earth belongs to God and to God alone. That his glory and his majesty and his might is what results, it leads to the results of seas and rivers. He is the maker of those things. Those things are not God's, nor the result of the activities of God's. There is God alone, the creator and maker of all things, by whom and for whom all things exist. The earth belongs to him, and he has established it upon the seas and rivers. One of the purposes of declaring what belongs to God and all thi- that all things belong to him is no doubt to counter wrong ideas about creation in the world. That has a relevance even to this very day. Because how we think about the origins of things speaks into how we conceive of life having purpose, value, and meaning in various activities that could seem mundane or even Big milestone things that seem meaningful to us. Purpose in life and where things are heading. Origins matter. And this psalm is announcing to us what is helpful in our day and age as well. Because we are not the result of random, arbitrary, long drawn out changes of particles and chemicals leading to the way things are now. The earth is the Lord's and he has made it for his glory and by his power. This is no Darwinian evolutionary story. This counters that cultural narrative today, just as verses 1 and 2 countered wrong understandings of the origins of the world in the days of the psalmist. We must know then and now that the earth belongs to God and he has made it for his glory. Paul knows this when he writes to the Corinthians. They had various backgrounds about Idols and false worship. And Paul understands that there are implications about food in 1 Corinthians 10. Because some would offer food sacrifice to idols. And he was talking about eating and keeping one's conscience clear. And here's one of the verses he drew upon. In 1 Corinthians 10.26, he's trying to get the Corinthians to see these idols are nothing. And that everything belongs to God. And what he quotes is Psalm 24. Verse 1, when you read in 1 Corinthians 10, 26, Paul says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's an argument for him. That's a declaration that was over a millennia old that for Paul had an abiding relevance for them to think about the smallest aspects of their lives like eating and drinking and who sustains the world. The world does not belong to you. The world belongs to God. We are stewards and faithful image bearers of the world he has made and are to live accordingly as faithful stewards and image bearers. But we are not those who established it upon the seas and the rivers. God has done this great work. And he's to be praised for this. The cosmic temple of the Lord, this filling of the heavens and the earth with his glory is followed in verses 3 and through 6 with our next question. Who may ascend to the sanctuary? So who possesses the world? We answered that with verses 1 and 2. Verses 3 through 6, we ask the question, who may ascend to the sanctuary? The connection between verses 3 to 6 
And what we've just looked at is this. The creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the founder of the mountains upon the seas is holy, holy, holy. And he has caused his name and his presence to dwell in a unique way in the lives of those contemporaries of David. And they approached the holy sanctuary of God. The question is, if this is the king of creation who reigns over all, then who may approach him? Who may come to dwell in his presence? Because how great and lifted up must he be? How exalted and praised must he be? How worthy must he be? So who can come to him? Verses 3 to 6, who may ascend to the sanctuary? The language of ascension is not just a geographical one. Though the city of Jerusalem was understood to be this city on a hill because of the regional lift in the land. The geographical raising of the land was to make a deeper spiritual point. That to come to God is in a sense to ascend in our hearts and souls before him. It's a way of talking about our position and his position. It's a way of talking about his supremacy. And that coming to know God is not coming to someone on our level. That God is holy. And so to come to God is in a sense to ascend. So who can do that? We have to ask that. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Those questions are asked and then answered in the next verses after verse 3. Asked and then answered. The hill of the Lord makes us think about that temple in Jerusalem. And in the days of David pre-temple, we think of tabernacle and Ark of the Covenant. We know that ascending the hill of the Lord, standing in his holy place, is parallel language in this verse. Ascending is ascending to stand. To stand in his holy place can mean standing to stay. It means to dwell. To dwell there. To stand and stay. The the reason we want to make that clear is in the Old Testament, we know that priests did go to the tabernacle and they mediated sacrifices. We could say in that important way, they ascended the hill of the Lord and they had to be ritually clean. They had to conform their lives and their actions and their words to the law of God that they might rightly and fittingly approach the holy place. But this is about dwelling in the place of God. And therefore, Psalm 24 must be understood in light of how last week's psalm ended. Looking at the psalms alongside one another can be illuminating. Because at the end of Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who shall ascend there? Who is it that shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Who's going to ascend and stand? Who shall stand in his holy place? The answer in verse 4, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. And we're immediately recognizing that in light of the Old Testament priestly requirements to be ritually clean, we see how all of those ceremonial acts of cleanness were always pointing toward the deeper need we have to be morally righteous before God. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. So here's how we know we're getting beneath ceremony. 
And why all the readers of the Torah and the opening books of the Old Testament should see that those rituals and ceremonies were suggesting something deeper all along. A pure heart is what we need. A pure heart is what we don't have. Clean hands are what we need. Clean hands are what we don't have. Because pure heart and hands represents the inner and outer life of a person, doesn't it? Clean hands makes us think about what is done outwardly. Pure heart makes us think about where our affections are, our deliberations, our reasoning, our desires, our thoughts. And it says here, clean hands in a pure heart. And we know that the inner life of the person that is righteous and glorifying unto God is meant because of the end of verse 4. That next line says it's someone who doesn't lift up his soul to what's false. Which means it's a person that rejects idolatry. Lifting up your soul to what is false, that's false worship. It's a violation of the first and second commandments, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto yourself a graven image. Those opening commandments of the ten are about directing our heart in right worship. That's what verse 4 is doing. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. What's that sort of person like? Well, see, he's, he or she is a worshiper of God. Not a worshiper of idols. In fact, their very words, their words are in conformity, not just to the way they relate to God, but to neighbor. So just as it seems right worship in the opening commandments is being invoked, I think at the end of verse 4, not swearing deceitfully reminds us of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness, reminding us of the commandments that relate toward neighbor. In other words, clean hands and a pure heart have to do with our life before God and before neighbor and someone who is morally fit to come before God. Oh my, this puts sinners in quite a predicament. As we realize from Genesis 3 forward, no one's hands are perfectly clean and no one's hearts are perfectly pure. So when we come before God in the Old Testament, the believers come before God with various ceremonial sacrifices with an understanding that I needed an unblemished sacrifice because morally I'm a blemished person. I needed a sacrifice that is appropriate and fitting to bring before God because I do not have clean hands and a pure heart that I need to come before God. So when they ascend the hill of the Lord, you know what they come with? The substitute. They can't come any other way. They come welcomed by God with the appointed substitute. And you see where this is going. Because the Old Testament is embedded with all of its sacrificial and temple institutions and ceremonial regulations with gospel shadows all over the place so that we would be able to answer the question post-cross and resurrection, how is it that we ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in the holy place? We only come in Christ. Where His righteousness has been counted to us because He had the clean hands and He had the pure heart and by faith they become mine. Because I don't have the clean hands and I don't have the pure heart. So when we ascend to God and come to know Him and walk with Him, we do so welcomed into His presence, not condemned, only because we come with the substitute. 
Do not lifting up, not lifting up soul to what is false, not swearing deceitfully. It's a way of summarizing, I think, the commandments of God relating to God in true worship. Relating to neighbor in true love. That our words and our actions would be marked by obedience. You see, someone who is looking to the Lord and seeking to worship the Lord, they are looking to the Lord as their refuge. They're not trying to save themselves. You know what they receive by faith? Verse 5. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You don't need a righteousness you can achieve. You need a righteousness you can receive. One you can by faith trust God to grant. And here, receiving blessing from the Lord is a blessing of righteousness from the God of his salvation. This psalmist and the people who needed to hear this important word would be able to know the promise of God to those who come to him. So, In other words, what would be the implication, the exhortation here? Well, we should be the kind of people who would be able to notice then the worth of God and the folly of idolatry. The beauty and wisdom of looking to God as our refuge in the destructive path of sin. So that we will look to God as our Savior and we will receive from Him righteousness that's not our own. Meaning that it did not originate within us. And it becomes our own by faith. We look to God, who is, He is called here the God of His salvation. Listen, friends, that's the kind of God we need. The one who is a God of salvation. And He is the one. We receive blessing from Him, righteousness from Him. I think the light of the New Testament opens all of this up with even greater clarity. We see that by faith... Believers come to the living God. They abandon the ways of false worship and wickedness. And we look to God as our refuge and the one who alone can pardon sin. And we receive from him blessing and righteousness because he is the God of salvation. God of salvation. I think it's describing the God that brings salvation about. Salvation here is what he grants in his blessing and righteousness to us. In other words, why is it? That we might want blessing and righteousness from God. Because anything we might try to cultivate within ourselves is not going to bring about salvation. But God can. Blessing and righteousness from God, the God of salvation, is what we need. Friend, don't you desire that? Getting a sense of our own guilt and shame in this world and what we are rightly guilty of before God. Who would be Just and righteous to condemn us for our wickedness and sin. God is a God of salvation. So let us go to him. That from him, in going to God as our refuge, we receive righteousness and blessing from him. Those who receive blessing and righteousness from God, he is not a God of judgment for them. He is their deliverer. Those who do this in verse 6. They are those who seek God. A generation of those who seek God. Such is the generation of those who seek Him. Those who come, if you will, with the substitute. Those who come by faith to receive from God blessing and righteousness. They are a generation of God's seekers. They're called seekers of God here. Because you're not seeking God and rebelling against Him at the same time. They've repented. They've turned. They are seeking God. 
not seeking what was dishonorable to God and down a path of destruction and judgment. They are the seed of the woman that originates from Genesis 3 forward, the spiritual seed that are believers in God, calling out to God, refuge is God alone, versus the seed of the serpent, a spiritual identity marked by image bearers who are in rebellion against God. The generation of the God seekers, they are those who seek the face of the God of Jacob and were reminded with the name of that patriarch, Jacob, was renamed Israel. The God of Jacob is the God of the Israelites. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the God of covenant promises and blessing. And from the God of the Israelites, those who are true followers of Yahweh receive from him blessing and righteousness that mark them as his people. That's what God grants. What is it that characterizes their lives? They are God seekers. They pursue him. They don't pursue the God they don't know. They pursue the one they've come to know in Christ Jesus. They seek after God. They pursue him seeking to conform their lives, inner life, and actions outwardly to what would bring glory to God and honor to God. In other words, they seek to be sheep who follow the shepherd. They seek to hear the voice of God through his beloved word. That his good and gracious word to us would be what shapes and and directs our hearts. They are seekers of God. Those who seek him are in contrast to those who refuse him. Those who reject him. Those who deny him. Those who rebel against him. You You can fill in that latter category with the contrast with all sorts of other phrases. And none of those other phrases are God seekers. That's the opposite, isn't it? So do you want to be one who seeks the Lord? God has sent his one and only son that we would not perish but have everlasting life in the Lord Jesus Christ. You need righteousness that you do not have apart from Christ. But in Christ, you will have all the righteousness you need. For you will have Christ. In his perfect work, in his saving name above every name, you need Christ. And you will receive from God in His Son all that we need. For He is the God of salvation. And His Son is the one who saves. God demonstrates that He's the God of salvation. This is not some trite title. How do we know God is the God of salvation? Well, we read the New Testament. And we read that not only in the Old was He a God of great signs and wonders. He fulfilled His promises and sent His Son to die for us. He is indeed the God of his salvation. He could not demonstrate it more powerfully than through the cross. So those who come to Christ, who look to his clean hands and pure heart in our place, who come with the one who is the only substitute for sinners, they are a generation of those who seek him. We must be a generation of God seekers. We are responsible for this. To seek the Lord. You see how purposeful that language is? This means this is not a life where you and I are saying with our mouths, well, you know, I want to be a Christian, but we just sort of coast in our lives, just kind of do really whatever we want. Those who seek the Lord, there's such a deliberateness to that, isn't it? They're following God on purpose. They want the Lord. They want to know God. They want to love His Word. They don't want to be foolish. And they don't want to live in defiance of God. They want to know God. And they want to be the generation that seeks His face. There's something so intimate about that. Something so up close and personal about that. 
To seek his face is not language of distance, remoteness. It's language of nearness and relationship and communion. David said in verse 5 of last week's psalm, You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. You know, in the end of Psalm 23, God is the host. He's the faithful shepherd for his people. And he's the host inviting them into fellowship with him. So those who are called to fellowship with God, they are those who are seekers of God. We think about the blessing from the priests upon the people that's rooted in Numbers chapter 6. The, the, the part of the blessing that goes this way. May the Lord make his face to shine upon, upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. Seeking the face of the God of Jacob and receiving blessing from him might recall with that language of blessing and face the language of number six where the very presence and favor of God is upon sinners. Verses one through two, we ask the question, who owns the world? And then verses three to six, we've asked, who can ascend to the Lord? And then thirdly, we ask, whose arrival should we celebrate? Whose arrival should we celebrate? Verses 7 through 10 is repeated nearly exactly within these verses. You may have noticed that already when we were reading through it. Lifting up your heads, that's resumed in verse 9. The call to be lifted up, ancient doors and king of glory. Verse 9 returns to that language. The question in verse 8, who's this king of glory? The Lord. That's answered in verse 10. Who is this king of glory? The Lord. Verse 10 contains a few small stylistic variations, but it's nearly an identical repetition of verses 7 and 8. And, and the way to imagine this scene is with a call and response. So what I think we have here in verses 7 and 10 our people, let's think about the old, old uh, situation in the Old Testament where the Ark of the Covenant, so we're talking about days before Christ. The Ark of the Covenant goes to battle and is returning to the temple. Or maybe even in 2 Samuel 6 when David calls for the Ark of, of God to be carried to the temple or to the sanctuary before the temple is built by his son. You have the arrival of the Ark of God symbolizing the grandeur of the king. So the coming of the ark in the midst of the camp of Israel is to signal the holy king in their midst. So you have these people, if you will, approaching the hill where the ark will go. And they say to the gates and to the doors, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors. Now what's that language about? How do gates and doors have heads? I think this is a literary device known as personification where something that's not human is being given some human characteristics, like gates have heads that have been downcast. And ancient doors have heads that are hanging low. And it could be because they are despairing about something, fearful about something. And lifting the head in the Old Testament is a picture of being reinvigorated, of having life and refreshment and renewal just injected into the deepest part of your life. So when this says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. It's to say to those at the sanctuary to anticipate the one who's coming. It's a picture of anticipation and joyful edge of your seat, hand to brow, on, the, on your tiptoes, looking for like, what's coming? What's coming? Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. And the reason these gates and doors are given this kind of human characteristic is because the gates and doors were manned by people. So you've got door holders and you've got gatekeepers. And they were to be 
diligent and vigilant, and especially mindful of the approach of those who were coming with the Ark of the Covenant. So the heads and the gates are to lift their heads. Why? That the King of glory may come in. Because the temple symbolized the reign of Yahweh. The connection in verses 1 and 2 is that God is not only the creator and reigner over all things, the micro situation of a, of a sanctuary in Jerusalem represented his sovereign rule on earth because Jerusalem was to be the city and the light, if you will, for the nations who needed to know the living God, that they might learn true worship from the living God. Believers in Christ Jesus are called the light of the world for this reason. That we might proclaim the good news of Christ and tell people who need to leave darkness and come to light, who need the power of God raising them from death to life, that the living God is worthy of their praise and that they should repent of their sin and trust in Christ. He is the King of glory. This is the only time in the whole Bible the phrase King of glory is used. Only here. Now, rightly, the word glory appears many times, and the word king appears many times. I'm talking about here as a combined phrase. The king of glory. And no doubt it is speaking with this phrase of glory, a king who is worthy of it, and who possesses inherently such majesty and worth that he would be a king of kings and a lord of lords. Who is this king of glory? Comes the response. So you have the declaration of those coming with the, the ark, so to speak, right? Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your uh, heads, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then, so they want now those at the doors and the gates, they want the answer to their question. Well, who is this king of glory? It's not that they don't know. The rehearsal of what they do know is a celebration. They are a people of God who are door holders and gatekeepers, not ignorant of what's important or who the worthy king is. The exercise, it's not a mere formality. It's an exercise in celebration over God's greatness and victory. So who is this king of glory? That's their question. And then I think flipping back to the earlier group, the answer, the Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So if they have come from battle, if the ark of God is being returned to this sanctuary, perhaps that's the context here, then they are reiterating with verse 8, the Lord has demonstrated his strength by defending his people and exercising victory on their behalf. Why are they so excited? Because to celebrate the victory of the Lord is their victory. The victory of God counts for them. The work of God is on their behalf. So when we celebrate and sing things like victory in Jesus, the reason we celebrate the victory of Jesus and proclaim and shout the triumph of Christ is because in Christ, his triumph has become ours. And here in verse 8, they announce Yahweh as the king of glory. He is strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. And verses 9 and 10 go over that again. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And so then those are the gatekeepers and door holders. They say, who is this king of glory? And then the answer from the earlier group, the Lord of hosts. Hosts is a military term. A God of armies. It's to speak again with that phrase of his might in victory for his people. He's the Lord of hosts. He's God almighty. 
He is the King of glory, they say. When we look at Psalm 24, I think Handel's Messiah is right. And Handel wasn't the one who first thought about this in Christian interpretation of the psalm in the 1600s. You read much earlier in church history, the early centuries of the church viewed Psalm 24 as the people of God giving a victory shout over what Jesus has done. It's about the triumph and vindication of His work. He was the promised King. So you have here David writing about a greater King. You have David writing about the one who would be a King of glory. A King of kings. A King who would ascend in such holiness and greatness to the praise and rejoicing of His people. There is no other King but Jesus this applies to. Think about Jesus coming to Jerusalem on the first day of the week on Passion Week. Here He is approaching the culminating week that all of His earthly ministry and the Incarnation itself had been pointing toward. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see, I hope somebody on that Palm Sunday was singing Psalm 24. <laughs> Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, so the King of glory may come in. Think not only of His arrival on Palm Sunday. Think of His resurrection from the dead. A return after victory in battle. A triumphant, finished work of the cross. The defeat of sin and the evil one. That in Psalm 24, we recognize vindication and victory, not just with the work of Jesus on the cross, but His resurrection on the third day. Think not just of Palm Sunday and not just of Good Friday and the resurrection on the first day of the week again. Think also of the weeks later when He ascended. Think of His mighty ascension, where over all things He reigns as the Son of God with all power and glory to return for His people. He is the risen one, the King of glory. And could we not say that at His ascension, all those could shout, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, that the King of glory may come in? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord in verse 3? Who shall stand in His holy place? You know what the hill of the Lord in Jerusalem, that earthly sanctuary, pointed to? The realities of heaven and the life of new creation to come. Those were earthly shadows that Psalm 24.3 is recalling. So when we see the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The answer is, Jesus shall ascend. Just read the text. Read what He does in Luke 24 and in Acts 1. Who shall stand in His holy place? Jesus shall. And because He does, we shall. We shall ascend in Him. We shall stand in Him because Christ is our fortress and refuge and blessing and righteousness from God has become ours through faith in Him. So friend, when we think about Psalm 24, think about and rejoice in Christ. Hope in Christ. Look to Christ for whom and by whom all things were made. Let's stand together as we pray.